that's generator motivation. And with a very kind heart that sees that everybody wants happiness, nobody wants suffering, and that we're all completely equal in that regard. Then let's shed this self-centered thought that's always thinking me, I, my, mine. And instead, let's adopt the thought that thinks us. And what is beneficial for all sentient beings. And we'll find that as we do that, as we release the self-centered thought, that we're actually much happier and the people around us are happier as well. And if we extend that thought even more, the thought wishing to benefit others, then it culminates in the bodhicitta wishing to attain enlightenment for their benefit. And so let's cultivate that thought and think that will listen to teachings on Vinaya in order to set a firm foundation for the rest of our practice to enlightenment. So this self-centered thought that uh, keeps getting touched on in the teachings here and there is uh, a huge problem for us and we seldom recognize it as a problem. We usually think our self-centered thought is our best friend and that whatever self-centered thought wants, that's the best thing for us. So self-centered thought is kind of like the general We uh, salute it every morning. We bow to it. We say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And we do whatever it thinks. And meanwhile, it leads us to a lower rebirth. But in the process, we think we're really happy. Because self-centered thought is always saying, oh, do this, do that. You feel good if you do this. Go here, go there, get this, you know, be this and that. And uh, we follow it and then come a lot of conflict with other people you know because our main mind is just thinking about me what's good for me what I feel like doing what I want you know this mind Some of you are looking at me like you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Maybe you don't know the self-centered mind, but it knows you. (laughs) And the self-centered mind, it's what, um, it makes us extremely ego-sensitive. So any little thing that is done by anybody else 
we take so personally. You know, oh, this comment was meant especially for me. You know, of course, somebody was making it to a group of 300 people. You know, and they were criticizing me. And, uh, you know, everything. People don't say good morning to us the way we like people to say good morning. People do, you know, any small thing. And we instantly interpret it as an affront to us. And they did it deliberately because they don't respect me. They don't understand. Who do they think they are? You know? So there's a very strong sense of who we are. And then interpreting everything in, pers- in relationship to me. <clears throat> and we think this is objective reality because after all we are the center of the universe. And we assume that everything we interpret is actually the way things exist because I'm the center of the universe so everything I think must be right. I mean, how could I possibly be wrong? So then we kind of knock around life a bit. Um, Wondering why people just don't shape up and do things the right way, which is the way I want them to be done. Because if I think it, and I think that's a good way, then it must be the right way, and everybody should always do that. And if they aren't, then they're just plain old stupid. So, uh, you know, what I think is right, my way of doing things is right, what I want is the way things should be. And then we wonder why we're unhappy. And we wonder why we have problems with other people. We never consider that, you know, somebody else having problems with us might sometimes be due to our behavior or our words or our attitude. You know, we never consider this because we think everybody should kind of adjust themselves to me. And if I'm in a good mood, everybody should be in a good mood with me. And if I'm in a bad mood, the whole world should stop and come and cheer me up and pat me on the back and give me words of encouragement, maybe a hug, you know, how about some attention. Unless it's on a day when I don't want any attention and then everybody better know that they need to read my mind and not give me attention on the days I don't want attention, but to give me attention on the days I do want attention. And it's everybody else's responsibility to know when I want this and when I want that and to act accordingly. Right? You know, they don't have any needs. They don't have any anything. But they should just suit everything according to what I happen to need, what I happen to want. And then when people don't, we get furious at them, totally furious. You don't appreciate me. You don't love me. You said you love me, but you're not doing this, and I want you to do this. 
wind up quite miserable and go through our whole life in this kind of confusion and you know getting angry and then growing up and being very bitter because nobody seems to appreciate us and do what we want and so we grow up very bitter and the whole time it's the world's fault because the world doesn't get that I'm the center of it you know and if other people just really understood I was the center then they would act appropriately then everything would go very well right So we think this is an individual, you know, I'm the center of the universe. Then if we're a member of a group, my group is the center of the universe. Americans, we have no doubt at all, we are undoubtedly the center of the universe. Not just the planet, but, you know, any beings in anywhere else should know that, you know, we're the only superpower. And, you know, people on Mars should just recognize that, you know. They're going to be our 51st state. (laughs) Canada, you lost out. (laughs) That's what you get for not appreciating us. (laughs) So, we, uh, you know, we, we just have this thing, you know, as we look at life from this, it's this teeny periscope called me, you know, coming up and out, seeing just a little, little, little bit. But we think we're seeing everything. And then we wind up actually being quite unhappy. Do you have people that you're in conflict with in your life? Some of you are really great. <laughs> so, you know, think about it. What's, what's the source of the conflict? What's going on there? Now, I'm not saying that we always capitulate to what other people want. Okay? Repeat. I am not saying that we always capitulate to what other people want. Because sometimes what other people want is nonsense. It's stupid, and it's coming from their self-centered thought. So the remedy to being self-centered ourselves is not just to be completely subservient and do what everybody else wants. Anyway, that's so confusing because one person wants this and the other person wants the opposite. So who are we going to be? if we're always trying to be and do what other people want because they never agree. Okay? So the remedy to the self-centeredness is not just, you know, throwing everything out and behaving like a puppy dog, doing what other people order. The antidote to the self-centeredness is learning to think clearly, you know, And to get the self-centeredness out of the picture and put compassion for ourselves and others in the picture and then, with compassion, develop some wisdom that is going to see what is of the greatest benefit to everybody in this situation. That doesn't mean everybody needs to be happy with what we do. 
because that's impossible. But it does mean that we think beforehand what is going to be of the greatest benefit in the long term. Not in the short term, because sometimes what benefits people in the short term term is what sends them to the lower realms in the long term. Isn't it? You know? Somebody's an alcoholic, I want some more booze. You think, oh, I'm practicing compassion. Here, go buy some more booze. Is that helpful to that person? Is that compassionate? I think that's stupid. Okay? So, it's not things like that. Sometimes when you're really acting for the benefit of others, you have to be willing for people to dislike you. So acting for the benefit of others does not mean that you're going to win a, a, a popularity conference, uh, contest. You know, sometimes we think, oh, I have so much conflict with others because I'm so self-centered. So now I'll just do what other people want and then they'll all like me and then I'll be compassionate. No, it's not like that. Just doing what other people want is not necessarily compassionate, nor is it wise. And sometimes the best way to be compassionate, we have to do things that other people are not going to like us for doing. Because in the long run, that's going to be the best for them. I always give the example of parents raising children and if you try and give your child everything they want you're going to wind up with a horrible child your child's going to love you to death because you did everything for them but the kid's not going to be able to function in the world and they're going to wind up being very unhappy in their life They've never got taught how to deal with frustration, never got taught how to share, never got taught how to be part of a team and do things together, never got taught how to think of what others need and reach out to help them. So just doing things people like and just trying to be popular with them is not necessarily the kindest thing. If you think in your life, has somebody, uh, can you think of a time where somebody has given you some advice that you did not want to hear, that you didn't like, but that you realized years later was actually very good advice? And you spent a long time disliking this person because you didn't like their advice, but actually they were trying to help you. Okay, so just you know, pay attention to that self-centered thought. It, it's really, uh, it's very sneaky. It comes up in all sorts of ways. You know, because this mind that's trying to be Mr. or Ms. Popularity, that's also the self-centered thought. Yeah, being a people pleaser because we want people to like us, that's a self-centered thought. And not caring about other people, that's also self-centered. So it's really hard to see, you know, with clarity, you know, beyond the self-centeredness. But it, and it takes a lot of practice and trial and error 
but the clearer we get on it, the easier our life becomes. And the stronger and more uh, courageous we become. Because we're not just looking out for the eight worldly concerns. We're looking out for what's actually a long-term benefit. Okay. So there were a few other things I wanted to talk about, about changes that we undergo when we become a monastic. So we talked about changes in appearance, changes in our name, in our livelihood or in our occupation, uh, changes in our dress, wearing robes. And here to really emphasize, I think it's quite important that people always wear their robes, unless you're in a situation where it could be dangerous, like you're climbing on a ladder, you're working in the forest, you're um, near, uh, you know, uh, equipment, electrical equipment, where your robes could get stuck in it, in some kind of tools or something like that. But when you go to town or wherever, you go to see your family, wear robes. Because, um, although I must say, one time, the first time I went to see my family after I ordained, I didn't wear robes, but that was because my teacher told me not to. I wanted to. And he said, you be California girl. I said, I don't want to be California girl. He said, you be California girl. And it was actually quite wise because my mother would have started shrieking and got hysterical in the middle of L.A. International Airport (laughs) if I arrived in my room. So, you know, I followed his instructions. That was quite good. But, uh, you know, and when I went into China, I I put on some uh, maroon pants. And then after I got through the customs, I put on my robes and I wore my robes as much as possible so that all the uh, Chinese soldiers could see that a Westerner appreciates Buddhism. Of course, I got to meet some of the Chinese police. (laughs) They were so friendly. They came looking for me. They wanted so badly to see me. But that's another story. Um, Okay, but wearing your your robes is very good. Because when you wear your robes, it keeps your mind in remembering what you're doing. You know, when you put your robes on in the morning, you think these are the robes of the Buddha. You know, I'm following in the Buddha's footsteps. And so you remember your ethical conduct. You remember how fortunate you are in, uh, to be ordained. And I've even noticed around here, even when we sometimes put pants on because of work, our mind changes. You know, And I watch people lose mindfulness just because their clothes is different. Even they're still here at the Abbey. Can I tell them what you did? (laughs) I was looking out my window one day. (laughs) And somebody's driving a car kind of around there. You know, here. And there's Venerable Tarka in her pants sitting on the hood of the car. I thought, maybe she thought it was the Rose Parade. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, so we we just see, we talked about it afterwards. 
And, you know, just how, you know, by putting on different clothes, our mindfulness goes sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's very, very helpful to, to wear our robes at all times. Okay. Um, then how we receive food is different, you know. We uh, are deliberately making ourselves dependent on others. Now, uh, you know, at the time of the Buddha, the monastics received, they went on Pindapat with their alms bowl. They do not beg. Okay, this is a mistranslation saying that monastics beg or they have a begging bowl. It's an alms bowl. There's a big difference. When you're begging, you're going around saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. When you're on alms, you're just standing there and if people want to give you, they come up and give. But you don't ask. As Buddhism spread to different countries, um, sometimes the climate, sometimes the uh, societal values made it difficult to go on Pindapat. And so, therefore, uh, sometimes people brought food to the monasteries and the monasteries uh, began to cook the food. Or sometimes, like in China, the monasteries... uh, uh, many of the monks and nuns didn't want to be in the cities because there was always a lot of politics going on and they didn't want to get involved with the bureaucracy and the emperor and this stuff. So they went to the countryside. So they got in the habit of growing their own food, even though we have a precept not to cultivate the earth, not to dig the earth. But they did that for a particular reason, you know, and you know, who wants to be involved in politics. Yeah. So um, you'll find within the different Buddhist traditions different views and different ways of doing this. Uh, in China and in Tibet, the monasteries started owning property with uh, people working on that property. And uh, the monastics collected rent on it. So, uh, I mean, this is one of the reasons why the communists were able to devastate Buddhism because, you know, this kind of thing was going on. Of course, people had donated the land to the monastics and, you know, here, use this for your monastery. But then the fact was that you had many of the people living in, you know, who are working the land, who are not living in in really good conditions all the time. So, uh, you know, that that's what the the communists fed on. But, um, and nowadays, you know, like in the Tibetan community in exile, uh, many people buy their own food. In the Chinese community, most of the people, the monastics, still live in temples and monasteries, and the monasteries provide the food. Sometimes you will find individuals living on their own, in which case they handle the money and buy the food. But um, I think as much as possible uh, that we could um, make ourselves dependent on others. It sounds weird to make ourselves dependent, but what it does is it really... Um, First, it teaches you to be satisfied with what other people give you. Second, it teaches you to really appreciate uh, others, you know, and their kindness. And third, it gives you a feeling of more responsibility to practice well 
because you see that the people who are donating the food have worked very, very hard to earn the money. You know, and we're sitting up here with the luxury of practice, and they're holding their jobs in town, working very hard, and then out of the kindness of their heart, either bringing food or offering the money to other to the group nearby who shops and offers food. Okay, so it makes you really feel more responsible for um, for being mindful when you eat, for practicing well. And not just going through our life the way we so often do as people in the West, which is, well, of course there's food, and of course there's lots of food, and I can get anything I want, and I can get as much as I want. Where even in other countries, and even in our own country, that is not the case for everybody. So it really helps us appreciate the food and where it came from and appreciate other people and their kindness. Yeah? Have you ever been without food? Have you ever been without food? There was only one time where supplies got very low here uh, at, you know, the first year we were here. But just as they kind of got very low, somebody came and brought food. Yeah. So we've, and even when they were low, it wasn't like we were totally out of everything. You know, we could have hobbled together, cobbled together some cans of stuff. So, uh, you know, and and I think doing that really helps us instead of the mind, I want this, I want that. Really developing, learning to develop some satisfaction. Um, Then another thing that changes is um, our lodging, yeah, where we live. So, uh, the Sangha does not, they're not actually allowed to live in the same place with lay people in the same room. Um, the fully ordained people have a precept not to stay more than three nights in a room with somebody who isn't fully ordained. But um, it's very much emphasized the importance of living in a community simply because it's quite difficult to keep your precepts when you're not in community. And if you ordain and then you're living on your own in a regular old place, you know, it's very easy to keep on doing the things you were doing as a lay people, as a lay person. Now, some lay people, you know, don't have a lot of distractions. But, you know, most people have a TV and a this and a that and the other thing and a car and you know and so it becomes quite difficult to to really develop that simplicity in lifestyle so that's why it's highly recommended to uh, live in community also um, we're not allowed to uh, to sleep in dangerous places yeah the sangha should not sleep in dangerous places because um, our precious life, human life, is quite valuable. We need to protect it. And especially with um, bhikshunis, you know, they're not allowed to live uh, with bhikshus or, you know, in the same building or with lay people. Because, again, it's just too easy for romantic relationships to start or for, um, you know, discipline to get quite sloppy. <coughs> Similarly, monks 
are not allowed to stay in a room or in an, you know, uh, if there's an apartment. If you're a guest, you know, there can't be just women in the apartment. There has to be another man. Uh, so that you're always somehow protected in that way. Because otherwise, you know, things happen and then people wind up in trouble. So, you, you know, you really pay attention. Um, yeah. Okay, then um, there's also a change in responsibility that we go through when we are ordained. Uh, and in that, we become much more responsible for the, the long life of the Buddha Dharma. And what other people think about the Dharma um, will be influenced by how we behave and how we speak. So, you know, other people judging the Dharma based on one person's behavior, that's not the way it should be. Okay. But unfortunately, with people who are new, if they come into a Buddhist center and, or a temple or whatever, and the first person they meet is very ill-mannered or uh, very sloppy or who knows what, then they get that image that, well, this is just the way Buddhists are. In fact, Venerable Champa was telling me um, just after lunch that in their center in Germany, they used to make it so that volunteer, you know, anybody could volunteer and people could stay around the center. But then some of these people who were new, who didn't know very much, were taking the, the very, very new people around and saying things that were correct and, you know, and it wound up not being very good at all for the center. So now they have, <coughs> she told me, uh, uh, you, you have to apply to be a volunteer there. You know, and be screened to be a volunteer, especially if you're going to be dealing with the public, because to make sure that that uh, you know that the first person somebody meets when they meet the Dharma is somebody who's kind, somebody who's helpful, and so on. And so it's a big responsibility when you're out in town to behave properly, because when you're wearing your robes and people look at you. And if you're not, then they think, oh, these Buddhists, you know, what's going on? Look at them. They're totally nuts. Yeah. And which is unfortunate because, you know, then somebody may really turn away from learning the Dharma or they may criticize the Dharma without really even knowing what it is. So, uh, you know, it's a thing of realizing that our actions affect other people. Nama Yeshi used to talk about, you know, give other people a good visualization. <laughs> you, know, you know, we're always visualizing in our practices. So he's saying, give them a good visualization so that, you know, they'll be interested in, in the Dharma. So this goes for lay people as well, but as monastics, of course, you're much more conspicuous. As a lay person, if you misbehave in broader society, nobody knows it. Okay, if you're a monastic, people know it. Okay, and so that, in a way, is very good because it keeps you more mindful, it keeps you more careful. Yeah, it makes us much more attentive. So I don't see that as a burden. I see that as something that, that helps me to behave, you know, better. 
Okay, so those are some of the changes that, that happen. Um, you know, I talked last time also about how we relate to people of the opposite sex, or if you're gay, how, to, how you relate to people of your own sex. You know, that has to change when you, <coughs> when you get ordained. You know, because you don't want to be really near and very close to people where sexual attachment could develop, you know, or where a very sticky, gooey emotional relationship can develop. So also in a, in a monastery, they, they don't, um, you try not to develop like little cliques and you try not to develop a best friend. Every once in a while you see in a monastery, you know, a couple of people who are really close and, in, you know, even they're, they're the same sex uh, and they're not gay, but they're just very, very good friends. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't lead to smooth functioning in the monastery if you have two people who separate themselves out as being really good friends, who always talk together, who always eat medicine meal together, who always take walks together. It doesn't give a good feeling to the entire group. So we, we try and, um, you know, all of us have needs for emotional intimacy. That doesn't go away for, by changing clothes, you know. We have needs for emotional intimacy. But we try and develop that emotional intimacy in a very different way. And so it's not just with one special person that we trust with everything. Because that very easily could lead to some kind of sexual involvement, you know, and leads to breaking precepts. Um, And also, like I said, it's not good for the community. But you learn in the community to be more transparent about what you're feeling and to trust other people more in the community and to, to be more open. And then you find that, you know, you can be close, you can be intimate with other people, but it's in a different way than you used to before. I remember um, when one laywoman came to uh, help at a Sangha event and she made a comment to me after uh, some weeks and she said, I'm so used to when I'm in a group hooking with people and hooking into people, but I can't hook these people, you know. And she wasn't even aware of how much she had that habit to hook people and get into some kind of sticky, gooey, emotional, intimate, something, something, until she was with a group of Sangha and realized, no, that's not the way we relate to other people. Yeah? We try and, and, and be, you know, much more balanced. And, of course, sometimes you're closer to other people than to, uh, than this, you're closer to this one than to that one. Or if you have a problem, you're more inclined to talk to this person than to that person. That's quite okay. But I'm talking about when we get these, these cliques, you know, a little couple forming, or you get some kind of gooey, sticky relationship, and it's, it's, um, yeah, it's not healthy for, for our own practice or, for the community. So we learn to be intimate in quite a different way where you share and you can still share very openly. And in many ways, you're, you're much more open with people than you were before. But it's without the, the stickiness. Yeah. 
Because actually, in fact, to do the deep kind of work on ourselves that we're doing on a spiritual path, you know, to be open to work with other people in that way, we, you know, the stickiness is going to be a huge hindrance to doing that. Yeah. Are you you getting what I'm meaning? Yeah. So you you can be very very close. Yeah. But it's not. It doesn't have this possessiveness and this. You learn to work with your emotional neediness. Yeah. You learn to work with it. Of course, it takes time. It takes time. Years, yeah. But you learn to work with it, and you learn how to be close to people in a really healthy, mutual, bene- mutually beneficial way. So it can be quite nice, and then you really see people in the community change. And we've we've seen that in our community, haven't we? Okay. Then I thought what I'd talk about um, the rest of the session. Uh, somebody had, was asking questions about the spiritual teacher, and you know who ordains you, and how do you relate to different teachers, and so on. So this um, the whole topic in general in the long view about Lamrim about a spiritual teacher is a very difficult topic. It's not one that's easy to understand. And um, especially in the West, I think it's quite hard for people because we often put people up on pedestals and then we tear them down. And, you know, you know how we have sports heroes and movie stars and then we tear them down. Politicians, we tear them down. You know, everybody, we put them up and then we tear them down. So uh, that kind of habitual way doesn't work very well to have a good relationship with the spiritual teacher. You know, having a very idealistic view that idolizes them isn't so healthy and then trashing them also is very detrimental to our practice because it makes us, uh, you know, step away from the Dharma. So His Holiness talked about three kinds of spiritual teachers. One is our Vinaya teacher, one is our Bodhisattva teacher, and uh, Bodhisattva practice teacher, and one is our Tantric teacher. Okay? So your Vinaya teacher is the one that's going to teach you about the Four Noble Truths. They're going to be the person who gives you refuge and precepts, or if you take monastic vows, you know, they give you the monastic vows, they give you the Anagarika precepts. Okay, so that on that level of precepts. Your Bodhisattva teacher is the one that introduces you to the Mahayana and teaches you how to generate Bodhicitta and practice the six far-reaching practices. Okay, and then your Tantric teacher, and, gives, and they give you the Bodhisattva vow too. Then your Tantric teacher gives you Tantric initiation, and depending upon what class Tantra it is, they'll also give you the Tantric vows. Okay. So, um, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, anyway, we can have more than one teacher. It's perfectly all right. I think Atisha had 147 teachers, mm-hmm. something like that. He had quite a number. Um, 
you know, because you want to learn different things from different teachers. And some teachers specialize in one topic, but not in another. So you learn this from this teacher and that from that teacher and so on. Okay? And we're the ones who choose our teachers. Yeah. Nobody says to us, oh, you are my disciple that I've been waiting for forever. If they do, be careful. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we choose our teachers. It's, and it's our responsibility to check the qualifications of, of teachers and not just rush into things. Okay. So it's, you know, just as you don't marry the first person you meet, you don't, you know, necessarily take the first teacher you meet as one of your teachers. Just because somebody is a teacher doesn't mean they're your teacher. And just because somebody has the name teacher does not mean they're a qualified teacher. Because there are no certification processes, really. Uh, you know, in the Tibetan monasteries, you know, you can get a Geshe degree or a Kenpo degree or different things like that. But the titles are used in very, very different ways from one Buddhist tradition to the other. And sometimes people give themselves their own titles. Sometimes their students give them titles. But titles are very, uh, are not an in, a good indication of somebody's qualifications. And His Holiness comments that some people, when they're in the Tibetan community, they don't have any titles. But when they come to the West, all of a sudden, you know, His Eminence, the blah, 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 you know, Rinpoche, Excellence, blah, blah. Okay? So don't look for titles, His Holiness always says. Look for people's qualities. Mm -hmm. And somebody may be a very good teacher and a very qualified teacher, but you may not have the karmic connection with them. And somebody may be a very popular teacher, but you don't have the connection with them. Somebody may be, you know, some small teacher that nobody really looks at, but you have a connection with that person, and that person can really help you a lot. So what I'm saying is you don't base who you take as your teachers on who your friends consider their teachers. Okay? You can, of course, check up, and, you know, you ask around and, you know, see about somebody's qualities and what do they teach and how do they teach and how do they behave. And, you know, you check, does the teacher have good ethical discipline? Do they have some meditative experience? Do they have some wisdom? Have they studied the teachings very well? If you're in the Tibetan tradition, does this teacher have a good relationship with His Holiness the Dalai Lama? It's an important factor. Um... You know, does this person have a good relationship with their own teacher? Or are they a renegade who are just doing their own thing? You know? So you have to look very, very carefully. And just because somebody has a title, just don't, don't look at that. <laughs> yeah? Especially in the West, because titles are just, you know, here, there, and everywhere. Okay? Um... And so, and so look and see if somebody's compassionate. See if somebody's very patient. Or are they irascible? You know? Do they seem to always be pressuring their students to give them money? 
do they like to walk around with a whole flood of students behind them you know so that they look like a big teacher you know that doesn't mean that every teacher who has a big flood of students is doing that but you can tell when somebody's trying to attack you know attract people and then they're the big shot look at look at the other disciples of that teacher because if you practice with that teacher you you might have a tendency to become like their other students so see if you know those are people that that you like that you respect you know now of course you can't base it entirely on the students because you know people have the students in here yeah but if you see that there's a, a certain kind of group think or social pressure or something going on you know just just observe that and and really see well is this the kind of environment that i want to be in and grow up in okay so we're the ones who who choose our teachers and we can have more than one teacher our root teacher is um again and we you know we're the one who chooses our root teacher is the person you know amongst all of our teachers that we feel the closest to you know the one who when they teach it really goes right in our heart and it really helps us so much you know the person that we feel just so connected with usually people have one root teacher i don't i have 3 because there's 3 of them that do that to me you know and and then sometimes you know some of my root teachers are very busy so i ask i develop uh i strengthen my connections with other of my teachers who aren't as busy who then i can go to for more personal advice okay so sometimes you know your root teacher has lots of disciples very difficult to go see when you really need some personal advice so then you cultivate a relationship with another teacher that you can you know talk to that you have, you know you have more access to you know and then how close we are to a teacher that completely depends on us you know some people like to be very close to their teachers some people don't like to be close to their teachers some people like to serve their teachers some people don't like to serve their teachers you know so it's a lot of it's going to depend on on somebody as an individual how the relationship turns out yeah cuz we're the one who kind of indicates our interest in studying with somebody we're the one who you know makes appointments to talk about you know personal things so uh you know that kind of it it develops in that way um you know if you're living in a small community you're going to have more personal attention than you know it's holiest dalai lama you know it's going to be very difficult to get personal guidance okay so uh you know it works out quite differently for for different people yeah there's not one simple path way you know to go about it but the main thing is that we really check out a teacher's qualifications very well before taking that person as our teacher okay if we take um uh precepts um or refuge or a tantric initiation with a teacher then that person becomes one of our teachers 
Of course, many people in the West, they take a tantric initiation and they have no idea even what it is and they're brand new to Buddhism and, you know, they don't even know what's going on. So I think that is kind of a little bit different case. Yeah, they still can respect that person and, you know, consider them one of their teachers, but they don't have to really develop the relationship afterwards if they were totally, like, you know, new when they, they did. But they don't just disregard that person afterwards either, you know, because that person did help them in the Dharma. Okay. Um, so the person who you, you know, have tantric initiations from does not have to be the person that you that gives you your uh, monastic ordination. Okay, the person you take uh, bodhisattva teachings from does not have to be the person that you receive your ordination from. So they can be different people. Sometimes you may request somebody for ordination, and they may uh, want one of their teachers to give you the ordination, but then you come back and you train with your original teacher. Yeah. For example, in the Tibetan tradition, His Holiness ordains many people, but then those people are expected to go back and do their training and study with their own individual teachers in the monasteries or nunneries. Okay? So it works, you know, it's very different. Each monastery is different, each teacher is different, each tradition is different. Yeah, you can't make one kind of one-size-fits-all. Yeah. In, in the Chinese tradition, they used to have only one ordination every year, and everybody who wanted to get ordained that year went to that temple. Then they started doing it, so now individual temples have their ordinations, and that gives the students more choice, because some temples have more in-depth training, some less... You know, and so the students can also pick their ordination masters, pick more of the training that they want to get. So, uh, you know, it's different. And same in Theravada. You know, there's many teachers who, who give ordination, so people might go to one or the other according to, you know, who they have the, the closest feeling with. Yeah? Can you have um, teachers from... So can you have teachers from different traditions, like a Zen and Tibetan Buddhist? I think so. You know, we all have the same teacher, the Buddha, you know. And His Holiness, whenever people get really confused about who's my teacher, who's my teacher, this, that, he says, your teacher is the Buddha. The Buddha is our teacher. The Buddha gave all these teachings. Yeah? So we, we shouldn't have a mind that, you know, only my kind of Buddhism is the best. Rah, rah, my Buddhism. Don't you dare go to another tradition. Don't you dare go to another teacher. Don't you dare read that book. You've got to just read this book by this teacher in this tradition. Do you think if the Buddha appeared on the earth that he he would like that? You know, I don't think so. Buddha was always trying to get people, you know, to agree and to cooperate and work together. Now, that doesn't mean that you do mix and match. 
Yeah. And oh yeah, I'll do my Zen on Monday and Tibetan on Tuesday and <clears throat> you know, something else on Wednesday and I mix and match and, you know, make my soup, but it's, it's a Buddhist soup. Um, you know, I think it's it's good to learn, you know, kind of get some foundation and stability in something. And then when you when you have a strong foundation and stability, then you can start adding things from other practices, other traditions onto that. Yeah. But if you're 31 flavors and you can't settle on anything to practice and anything to study, then then you get the results of that. And so usually, if you uh, want to ordain, usually the process is you go to the person you want to give you the precepts and you make a formal request. And sometimes you have to ask up to three times. You know? And, you know, and then the, the teacher, you know, will, if they don't think you're ready to do it right then, then they will help you to create the causes and conditions and to get the next, you know, get a lot of preparation. Um, but again, here it's very different too. Um, with the Tibetans, they have the view that it's um, better to be ordained one day in this degenerate age than for your whole lifetime at the time of the Buddha. That's the view of a lot of Tibetan masters. And so their philosophy is, you want to ordain? Come, we'll ordain you. Okay. And also because in the large monasteries where they do a lot of debating, you need a lot of people for that educational system of debate to work. So they like a lot of people to ordain. Um, and that's their, their feeling with Westerners, too. You go and ask, and you could be brand new. They, they seldom do any screening, and they just ordain you. And then, of course, you're left to float afterwards. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, usually, if you, if you ordain somebody, that teacher has a commitment to help support you financially, you know, at least to make sure you have room and board and clothes and so on. Um, but often when Tibetan teachers ordain Westerners, they, you know, we are, we are not their priority. They're, the Tibetan monasteries are their priority. Um, and, and also because the Tibetans, you know, with this philosophy of everybody ordain and if they disrobe, it's okay later. Um, I don't quite agree with that philosophy. I can see the reason for it, and I can see the benefit for the individual in holding vows even for one day. But what happens is that um, when you're trying to establish the Sangha in the West, where people don't know what the Sangha is, then having people in robes and out of robes very quickly is is um, not very helpful for the general public developing faith and confidence in the Sangha. Also, uh, there's a number of people who have quite severe mental difficulties who are attracted and who want to ordain. And the Tibetan Lamas have, because they don't speak our language, they have no way of evaluating the person. And the person comes in and looks good and says, sure, yeah, we'll ordain. Then they send them to live with the other Western disciples who realize that this person has very severe mental problems and staying in the monastery and Dharma center is not what this person needs. 
And also they create a lot of, you know, chaos in the center. And I've lived in places like that. Okay? So I think it's uh, much better. There's uh, a lot of um, conditions that the Buddha set up for somebody to be able to ordain. And I think it's, it's much better that we follow those conditions and that we prepare people for ordination first and then ordain them instead of ordaining them quickly and then they're left to float and they don't know what to do. Like I was telling you the other day, that man who went to Dharamsala to ordain, who thought he can, you know, he didn't realize he was going to have to be celibate. <laughs> you know? It's, so, um, you know, I think it's, it's good to, to go slowly and screen people well, prepare people well, because if you prepare well beforehand, then you have fewer obstacles afterwards. Yeah. And everybody likes fewer obstacles. Having obstacles is not fun. And we're going to have enough of them anyway, so why create more? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, like, so, you know, like I said, you go and you make a formal request, and then the teacher, you know, may say, wait a while. They may say, come back. They may say, think about something first. You know, and then come back after you've thought about it. And so, you know, it works out quite differently uh, with different people. Okay. Um, I heard of some lamas telling their students, oh, you should ordain, even though the student themselves hasn't requested ordination. Um, you could look at it as, you know, maybe the Lama knows, uh, has clairvoyant powers and knows in the long term what is best for that person. But often I've seen the result of that in the long term is that the person, because the request hasn't actually come from them, you know, that it, they often wind up a little bit confused after they, they take ordination. So, you know, my personal preference is I think it, it should come from the person who wants the ordination. And that nobody should feel pushed or, or, uh, or forced or pressured into taking ordination. It's always one's own individual choice. Okay. Um, so the person who gives you tantric initiation does not have to be the person who ordains you and vice versa. Okay? Um, yeah. If you're a woman in the Tibetan tradition and you want to take, you know, go up and, you know, become a shikshamana and a bhikshuni, then you may want to start off with a female Vinaya teacher to start with, okay? Because sometimes it gets difficult to switch in the middle. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's you know like what I did is you know I went to Taiwan. I well I had my my uh, novice ordination in the Tibetan tradition, but my Bhikshuni Vinaya teacher, you know, who taught me the higher ordination is from Taiwan. Because she was the one who could teach me the Bhikshuni Vinaya. Um, my Tibetan teachers are monks, and they don't know the, you know, the Bhikshuni Vinaya or the Dharmagupta tradition. So that's the way that worked out. Um, okay, uh, sometimes um, this person, 
going down some of the points this person asked me to speak about. Um, uh, what does an unhealthy relationship look like, and what does a healthy relationship look like with your teacher? Um, a healthy relationship, you uh, you have a lot of trust in your teacher, uh, and your teacher is trustworthy. So both things, yeah, and uh, and you communicate well with your teacher. You're able to discern what you need to to talk with your teacher about and what you need to kind of figure out on yourself, by yourself. Of course, sometimes, you know, that takes us some time to figure out as well. So sometimes we don't ask for help when we need help or we ask for too much help when uh, we don't need it. Okay, so, you know, these are things that kind of you figure out as time goes on. And, you know, making mistakes, there's nothing too horrible about the whole thing. We all make mistakes. So don't feel like you have to get everything perfect and know everything at the same time because there is no perfect thing. Because like I said, everybody's teacher with everybody's relationship with his or her own teacher is going to look different. Okay. If um, and I think when you have a healthy relationship you have a real sense in your heart of your teacher's kindness, a really appreciation of what they've done for you and how, um, you know, if they hadn't shown that kindness, you would be really, really lost uh, in life and let alone in the Dharma. And so, you you know, you have an attitude of respect. Um, you're not picking faults at your teacher you may notice that your you know teacher does behaviors that you wonder about but you don't get into a judgmental mind about those behaviors okay so i don't think you need to kind of dream up some glorious stories about how those behaviors are actually fantastic but i think you can see them as you know okay these behaviors that i have some doubts about and then just think of it as, well, my teacher is showing me what I look like when I act that way. Yeah. And if you think like that, then that helps you learn from seeing that behavior without dreaming up, you know, some crazy story about how it's really, you know, some glorious behavior. Are you getting what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, Unhealthy relationship, if your teacher is embezzling money from the center, I would say that's unhealthy. If the teacher is sleeping with their students, I would say that's unhealthy. If the teacher is coming on to their students, that's unhealthy. If um, a teacher is really controlling and manipulative, I would say that's unhealthy. Of course, in many of these situations, it's quite difficult because you don't know uh, kind of what, what's, what's the part of the teacher and what's the part of the student. Because sometimes the teacher may be trying to help and the student just has a lot of resistance or the student just has a lot of judgmental mind and they're projecting all their garbage onto their teacher. Other times, the teacher you know, really isn't behaving appropriately. And the student is like, well, maybe they really are the Buddha and I should just help them to do this. I mean, I met one, one young woman came to see me once 
and uh, one Tibetan teacher had come on to her and she said no and she came to me and she was like did I do the right thing you know he's this very high lama and you know it would have been a very special thing to be with him and you know be close to him in that way did I really do the right thing and saying no I said yes you did the right thing <laughs> yeah so you know sometimes people get a little bit confused kind of thinking that because somebody's a teacher that they, you know everything is perfect and, and we have this teaching you know see the teacher as the Buddha see everything the teacher does is perfect mm-hmm. but that's within when you're practicing highest class Tantra that's the instruction for practicing highest class Tantra that's not the instruction for your Vinaya teacher or your Bodhisattva teacher okay and so, even in Vinaya, if your teacher breaks a precept and is not acting properly, you can say something to your teacher. Yeah. Of course, they say, if the Sangha reprimands your teacher, you don't jump in with the Sangha and, you know, start reprimanding your teacher, too. You know, you kind of have, you still have some respect and you have a a soft spot you stand up for them but you don't have to go along with the bad behavior okay so um, yeah and if a relationship with the teacher gets um, bad like if there's been some kind of abuse or you saw the teachers embezzling money or they're you know really doing something that they shouldn't be doing and you just get to a point where you feel you know I really don't want to continue studying with this person what his holiness recommends is that you still respect them as one of your teachers because they were kind to you and they did teach you a lot but you don't keep going to their teacher teachings you know and instead you cultivate relationships with other teachers that you feel more comfortable with okay so you know people have problems and things happen but you don't turn around and just trash somebody who's been kind to you before you know you might say okay I don't understand why this person is doing this and I just don't feel comfortable around it so I'm going to stay away but I really appreciate what they did do for me even though I'm not continuing to develop the relationship so there's a few minutes for questions about this Something um, what you said at the beginning it doesn't um, relate to the student-teacher relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that um, you had nearly no problem to get food. Yes. And I asked you uh, in the beginning of EMR um, how did you um, made it that the people now that you are here uh, uh, in the forest, and um, I I like to know more um, how. Um, how, how did you came into um, a talk with the people? How, how did you make it? Um, 
Yeah. How did we do it so that we don't buy our own food and we just yeah, how, live off how it? That you infor- how informed you the people? How, okay, how did we let other people know? Well, it, we put it on the website. And uh, when we first moved in, there was a handful, just maybe three or four people in the local community who, um, and you were a layperson then, you were one of them, who knew we were setting it up and knew that, you know, we weren't going to buy our food. And so those people brought food and they, you know, and they, they sustained us. And then as the Abbey grew, um, and, you know, more people would come stay here, then we, we started educating all those people who, who came here. Because often people would come, and the atti- the attitude is, oh, well, here's a place they don't charge, and I'll go there and they give me food, they give me everything, you know, that's easy, they don't charge, and because Westerners don't think about just because people don't charge doesn't mean you don't give, okay? <laughs> yeah, we usually think, oh, it's free, great. Um, so so we found that we really had to explain our whole philosophy to the people and I remember many of our initial meetings of Friends of Shravasti Abbey because we were a whole group of lay people who were supporting the Abbey oh, so many discussions about this at the beginning because they were saying oh, you can't do this and you know you got you should ask for food and how can you not charge and um, you know, people get confused when you don't do that, and um, she can tell you more about it, <laughs> you know, because she was one who was who was saying a lot of that, and, and you were you saying a lot of that too? Yeah, yeah, you came before too long, so yeah, and you came fairly quickly too, but um, yeah, but you know, she had a lot of resistance and was remembering the the meetings and. You know, just having to explain again and again, you know, we're not going to charge, we're not going to charge. And, uh, <clears throat> but realizing that we had to educate because otherwise people would come and they would stay and they would eat and then when they left, we didn't have a lot of food. <laughs> Actually, that happened the first winter. <laughs> Yeah, that was a very interesting time. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so we found we really had to explain that that we want to give from our hearts, but generosity is part of everybody's practice. So we give from our hearts, and the people who come give from their hearts. You know, and so we had to explain we really want people to give from their hearts. You know, we don't want people to think, well, I stayed there so many days and, you know, such and such per night, such and such per food, you know, this is how much I'll give. But instead, you know, okay, if I give, I'm supporting the community and I'm enabling the place to exist into the future, you know. Because there's some people who come here and they don't have a lot of money and they give what they can. And that's fine with us. You know, the, the thing is we want people to, to give something so that they don't have this mind that just says, well, it's free, I'll just go because it's free. Yeah. But it's a real educational process, and people in the West don't always feel comfortable with it. It's like, well, just tell me how much, please. 
<laughs> well, there's not a set amount. Well, how about give me a suggestion? <laughs> well, whatever you feel like. <laughs> yeah. Or sometimes we might say, you know, you could check up. You know, some of the, the other Dharma centers and how much they charge. But some Dharma centers charge extraordinary rates. I can't believe it. Yeah, and I don't want anybody here, if they don't have the money, to not come because they feel that they can't give that much. Mm-hmm. Um, are we allowed to ask if we wanted to take ordination here, what would be like the process or like what would you want it? Okay. Yeah. So the process is that somebody would come and live here for a while with five precepts. And then when they felt ready, they would ask for the eight precepts. And we have a ceremony and they take the eight precepts. And at that time, they put on this gray uniform that we just designed and shave their head. And so they're in training, you know, to become a monastic. But wearing the gray doesn't mean somebody necessarily will become a monastic. It's a trial period, you know, so that somebody can really try and see, well, what's it like to keep these precepts? What's it like to live in the community? And sometimes people find, you know, actually, this isn't for me. (laughs) Yeah. And I consider even if somebody takes the precepts, if in that process, they find that, no, this isn't for me, and they decide to leave. I think that's still been successful training because it's helped the person become clear about what they really want and, you know, what they want, where their talents and, and, and strong points are. So I don't consider that a failure if somebody does their anagarica and in the middle says, you know, not for me. Kind of like in the in the Catholic Church, you have um, novitiate, postulancy, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you put your postulancy and you go and you try it on. You may decide to leave in the middle, and and that's fine, you know, because you've learned something very important and gotten clarity on that. Okay, but if somebody stays on. And then, you know, when they feel that they're ready and they really want to, then they ask to take the novice ordination, which is Shramanera or Shramanerica. In the case of the women, they have another ordination called Shikshamana, which is a two-year training period. So, for example, you know, when Dallas takes ordination, she'll get the Shramanerica and the Shikshamana. We give them at the same time at the same day so that right away somebody can start their two-year training to train to in order to take the full ordination even though the Vinaya doesn't require the monks to have that two-year training at the abbey we do because just my experiences it's much better for people to go into things slowly get used to things you know When you're used to it, it feels comfortable, you feel ready to go to the next thing, then it goes very smoothly. Whereas when somebody's very excited, oh, I want to take the whole ordination right away, then, you know, sometimes it's, you know, afterwards they go, (laughs) yeah. Okay. So then somebody comes, uh, you know, they usually keep the eight, We say a year, sometimes it's shorter, sometimes it's longer, it depends on the individual. Then they request the novice, we give them Shramanera and Shikshamana. 
Uh, they do that for two years, and then they take, you know, then they request higher ordination. And right now we don't have enough um, bhikshus and bhikshunis at the abbey to give the ordination here ourselves. So we send people to one of the Chinese monasteries, and they take their full ordination there, and then they come back here to live. And then hopefully what I want to happen is over time, when we have enough fully ordained people who have been ordained long enough, then we can give the ordination here. And then Buddhism is really taking root when you have people in the own country who, you know, are, can, can give the ordination. Mm-hmm. Um, so what about, like, so for your finances and stuff, like how does all that work out when you come to that? Yeah. Well, we like people to have, um, to come here with some money because... Uh, we had an experience at the very beginning where somebody came and they were very generous and gave away most of their money and then they didn't have anything and then their mind kind of turned and they began to get very stressed and in a very bad mood and they felt very trapped here because they didn't have the money to leave. Okay? And of course, you know, we wound up giving them money to leave. I gave them some personal money to do that because I saw that that person wasn't happy here and being here wasn't the best thing for them at this particular moment. You know, so they left. We're still in touch. They want to come back. It'll be fine. Okay? But we really learned that it's not good for people to be here with no money because then they feel trapped if things don't work out. And also, people need some money because um, you need to get your own health insurance. Um, when, when somebody is fully ordained, we pay for their health insurance. But before that, people have to provide their own health insurance. Because, again, we want to make sure people are stable and they're committed and they're really into it for the long haul before we do that. Um, yeah? No debt. Yes, and no debt. No debt, because can you imagine, you know, calling people calling the monastery to face somebody, you know, for their debt? That would not be good. Yeah. So you have to, you know, pay your debt. Um, it's good to have your parents' permission, although um, it's not necessary in every case, you know, because the way we relate to our parents is a little bit different than people, the way people in Asia do. Okay. Um, yeah. Did you have something to add? Yeah. The same question, not the same one, but the uh, yearly requirements, and mm-hmm. the trial period, if you need, or uh, monastics are they somewhere else? Oh, okay. <laughs> so, if so, so if somebody's taken ordination with some, somewhere else, mm-hmm. and then they want to come here, then again, they come for a trial period, and we see you know, kind of how they fit in, we, we test everything out, and then usually, you know, they're kind of on probation for about a year, and then after that, then they can become a member of the community. Because yeah. I learned, I, I lived in a place in France, you know, in the 80s, and the, the, our Tibetan teachers ordain people, and they send them to us to live, I will not do that again. (laughs) It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And we had to take everybody, 
You know, there was no probationary period. There was no trial period. And it just doesn't work. You know, so the Catholics are have a lot of wisdom in the way they've set things up. And I've talked to a lot of Catholic nuns and I've learned a lot from them. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, in terms of the, um, uh, uh, I guess, requirement or cer- certain, like, things that uh, would not allow you to get ordained, mm-hmm. um, I was reading today um, that one of those things is and I'll use the wording in the book I was reading as being crippled, or mm-hmm. I'm guessing having a disability, or yeah. having a, like a, 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 a severe illness, or another thing was um, being albino. Okay. Okay. So the the one about being albino, because you know in India everybody is dark. So you know, I think I don't even know if they had albinos, but I know somebody who's albino who's ordained. You know, that one it is held to real strictly now. Um, The reason, you know, if somebody's quite ill or if they're crippled in some way is that it makes it very difficult for them to participate in community life. Yeah? And so it's, uh, you know, it's difficult to participate. And then other people, instead of being able to practice, they have to take care of you. And, um, And then you also have the thing at the time of the Buddha of people who would ordain just so that they could get free medical care and get somebody to take care of them. And in the Chinese uh, temples, you know, they talk a lot about this, at least when I, when I went, because they would have people who were old, you know, their kids are grown, their spouse died, they want to get ordained because they want to have a place to live the rest of their days where, you know, they can do a little dharma and then other people will take care of them. And, uh, and most temples won't allow that. Because then it, you know, it becomes very difficult for the people who want to really engage in study and practice. Now, of course, if somebody's ordained and then they get quite ill or they get in an, ac- in an accident and they're disabled or whatever, then you definitely take care of them, you know, because they're part of the family. You don't kick them out. You take care of them. But that's why, you you know, you have to be careful about who comes in, especially in this country where medical expenses are so high. Yeah. And you really want to make sure people are are taken good care of if they're sick. Would that be if someone had their own medical care and let's say they didn't have an arm or something, but they're functional and they know how to adapt and they're very good about... They've been living with their disability for quite a while, and they can contribute a lot. I mean, could, could exceptions be made based on... It dep- it's going to depend on the teacher if exceptions are going to be made. Yeah. It's going to depend on the teacher. Uh-huh. And, um, with the subject of medical insurance, does the other have a group health insurance coverage? No, we don't, because, uh, you know, we're just a handful of individuals, so to get a group policy is quite difficult. At one point, there was somebody who was looking into that, trying to uh, do some research about Sangha thing, but I don't think it went anywhere. It kind of fizzled after a while. So um, some people have private insurance. Some people are on Washington State Basic Health. 
which is uh, a program for people who don't have, you know, have minimum income. Uh, but, you know, it's not always easy to get on that program because they only have a certain amount of number of people and some, so sometimes they close enrollment and so on. But I think it's, you know, it's, it's only fair, if people are ordained, it's only fair that they, that they have to have health insurance because otherwise, you know, somebody gets hurt, then what happens to the monastery? The whole monastery could go under, you know? And so, you know, um, we let people, people come here as a visitor who don't have health insurance. But I think if somebody's going to live here, they, they really have to. Otherwise, it's, um, it's too dangerous for them and too dangerous for us just because of the crazy way our country is. Yeah? I wish it were different. Mm-hmm. Okay, after I took the Shuni ordination, where did I live? I went back to India, and um, so I was in India for a while, and then, then I got sent to Singapore, and then, then. I went back to the States and went back to India and then went back to the States. And who was my role model? Well, my Bhikshuni my Vinaya teacher was. But um, I had a situation that I wouldn't recommend to other people. Yeah, it was quite a difficult situation, often living on my own. And, you know, yeah, I wouldn't recommend my situation to people. One other thing is... Um, when people are lay people, we often recommend that they um, come to the Abbey many times before they actually move here, or or they come for a visit for, you know, if they live far away and they can't come many times. That, you know, we set a discreet amount of time that they're going to come and stay here. Because we've, again, found it easier sometimes if a person comes and goes and they get to know the community over time. It's like Venerable Tarpa, before she moved here, you were ten times, times, yeah? (laughs) You know, coming and going, coming and going. Yeah, and you were back and forth, you were back and forth visiting. Um, Venerable Champel's experience was was different. He actually worked here and lived somewhere else for part of the week and stayed here for part of the week. And you told me that that was very helpful for you, you know, instead of just moving here directly into the... You know, things to be away for part of the week and here part of the week. So everybody, you know, is very, very different how they are. Yeah, and and the actual procedures, you know, it's fine-tuned according to the individual. But ask some of the other venerables and see what their experiences were. Mm-hmm.